Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Okay, welcome back. We have a short little essay here called On a Purpose. And honestly, there's not much new that's happening in this essay that we haven't already discussed in variations on the standard treatment. In fact, the next couple of essays in Ecree are seem to me very much um, not derived, but secondary to variations on the standard treatment. There are, however, some good opportunities for us to reinforce key points about Lacanian psychoanalysis in this essay on a purpose. So it's a little one. It begins on page 303 of the English translation. And I think the big moments come on page 305, toward the top. Freud's discovery shows the structural reason why the literality of any given text, whether proposed as sacred or profane, increases in importance the more it involves a genuine confrontation with truth. So the stake here would ostensibly be this notion of the truth. But read the next paragraph with me. That structural reason is found precisely in what the truth that it bears, that of the unconscious, owes to the letter of language, that is, to what I call the signifier. So whatever Lacan is here doing with the notion of truth, he's connecting it to language and the unconscious, and then specifying that there's some link there at the level of the signifier, which we should talk about more. Reading on, while this incidentally accounts for Freud's quality as a writer, it is above all decisive in interesting psychoanalysts as much as possible in language and in what language determines in the subject. Okay, so we've got this familiar cluster of terms. Truth, the unconscious, language, the signifier, and now the subject. I think for us we should start with this last bit. What language determines in the subject? So we can start with some basic understandings of what it means to be a little baby growing up. So when a baby experiences discomfort, they cry out. They don't have words. They can't tell you that they're hungry or they're cold. In fact, they might not even be able to isolate those feelings. And in fact, they just cry when they're uncomfortable. It's up to the primary caregiver or whoever takes care of that baby. And all babies have to be cared for. That's one of the things about being human. We're not like horses that a few weeks after birth can be running around doing all kinds of stuff. We are more like worms. And without care from others for extended periods of time, we would die. So whomever it is that cares for us shows up when we cry. And they now have an opportunity to interpret our cry. What does it mean? If they interpret it as hunger, the primary caregiver returns with food. 
if the baby is already fed and doesn't want food, the primary caregiver might shift and say, oh, it must be cold, so it comes back with a blanket. You get the idea. The list can go on and on. The point, though, is that it's up to the grown-up to interpret the meaning of the child's cry. In other words, it's up to the grown-up to apply language and meaning and signification to a pre-linguistic utterance here at the level of a baby's cry, which is an expression of need. When the parent interprets this cry, they transform it into a demand. And that's what we mean by demand in psychoanalysis. It is need expressed in language. Now, what happens over time is that the parent or primary caregiver starts asking the little child to stop crying and use their words. This is a very important moment developmentally. The child learns that if they're going to have their needs met, they must articulate their needs as demands using the language of their parents, of their family, of their primary kinship relationships, of their neighborhood, of their society. This process is called castration, but a better word for it is just alienation or prohibition. Because no matter what your primary language was, the first one that you learned, <clears throat> the first utterance that you learned in that language, whether it was literally this or not, it functioned as a no, a prohibition of sorts. What the parent or primary caregiver tells the child when they say, okay, time to use your words. I can't understand you when you're crying. Use your words. Tell me what it is you want. I can't help you unless you tell me what happened, this kind of stuff. The effect of this is a prohibitive effect. It prohibits the child from not continuing to live in a state of Edenic bliss, pooping and peeing when they want to and crying and having all their needs met. That's not what is lost. On the contrary, what's lost is any furtherance of life without prohibition. When language is introduced into the child's life, and when the child, by extension, is inducted into language, the field of language use known as the symbolic, what's lost is any ability to continue living as though that didn't happen, as though there were nothing like language out there. One of the origins of psychosis we know, or we suspect from reading Lacan, is a defunct relationship with the symbolic particularly at the level of this original prohibitive moment. The psychotic disavows the prohibition that language marks in the advent of the subject in a way that the neurotic doesn't. The neurotic accepts that they must be alienated in a language that was not of their own creation and use it to get their needs met by expressing their needs in words, in other words, as demands. So this is one of the primary effects that language has on the subject, is it forces them to be torn between two worlds, one which is biomaterialistic and anchored in the field of need. This is like hunger, chill, feelings that you have in your embodied state. And then there's this other field of existence, the field of language, which is rather abstract which is where you exist at the level of the vertical pronoun I, at the level of your name. I feel cold is an expression of need put in this abstract sphere of language. 
And as a result, we're always divided between these two parts of our identity. We are one part bioanimalistic and driven by need, and one part sociolinguistic and driven by demand. The primary effect of language on the subject, then, is a kind of splitting between embodiment and language. Life as an enunciating subject who feels the urge to speak, and life as a grammatical subject who speaks themselves into language, who exists at the level of the word as well. This is the primary effect that language has on the subject. What language determines in the subject, as we see here on 305, is this subjective splitting. And when I say that language and its first word was no, I mean that it functions as prohibition. And the prohibition here is against living any further without this split which is why we have so many dreams and fantasies of wholeness and completion and so many nightmares and horrific images of instead of completion being torn apart, being broken apart, having bodies that don't work. This is one of the basic tropes of the dream is you're trying to get somewhere and you can't. You reach for the cup, but your hand doesn't work. You're going downstairs, but you can't stay on the ground. The nightmares usually referencing a split subjectivity at the level of fragmented bodily images where you feel completely disjointed, discombobulated, and the like. Much of this experience is too difficult to deal with, and so we repress it. It becomes among the signifiers that inhabit our unconscious. Let's pause there and see where we can go next. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.